0: Thank you, praise team. <clears throat> you know, you know when the most nervous time is when you're preaching. Right when the last song is coming to an end, like your heart just so. Like, I guess you didn't even know that, but I wanted you to know that. I'm Pastor Tim, the executive pastor here at our church. And if you were here last week, you know I've been I've preached last week and this week because our senior pastor. Uh, Pastor John and his wife Shelley are on vacation and he will be back here in the pulpit again next week. Um, I started a series, as Brian said, well, I guess a series is a poor choice of words, um, a two-part, um, two messages that kind of go together and yet um, do stand on their own. If you didn't hear last week's message, What Defines You, um, this message this week I think stands on its own and I've entitled it, What Happens When Life Happens. Um, what happens when things come up that we're not ready for. Last week's message, What Defines You? I talked about the fact that we are defined, I brought up three different ways. We're defined by our environment and our influences. We're defined by what we do and we are also defined by who we are and I'm sure there's other, other things that define us as well. But I tried to help us to think through that question, what defines you? And this week with the the, the title being, What Happens When Life Happens. The point of it is that um, I think when life is clipping along rather normal and comfortable and you're, you're kind of in a groove, it's pretty easy to answer that question, what defines you. Um, but I think it gets a little bit harder when when change comes, when life happens if you will, it gets a little bit harder to, def- to, to answer that question what defines you because you, get, you kind of get out of your groove and sometimes you have to kind of recalculate. I actually have a video that I'm going to show you to get us thinking. I'll tell you, I'll tell you it's, a, it's a Jeep commercial. Uh, that that actually Pastor Brian made me aware of it. I hadn't seen it, but I think it really gets us thinking about what we're gonna talk about here this morning. So I'll direct your attention to the stage while, the, I mean, to the screen behind me while they play that. In 15 feet, turn left. Recalculating. Go straight to a steady job. Recalculating. Stay single until you're 34. Recalculating. Show the company line. Recalculating. Be a vegan. Recalculating. Recalculating. Love, hope, happiness. Whatever your destination, there's a million beautiful, ever changing ways to get us there. When life happens, sometimes we have to recalculate, don't we? My question is though, when we recalculate, is that the same thing as redefining? That's what I kind of want to talk about here this morning. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this the last few years. At times, I have kind of felt like, as I've had to re kind of been forced to recalculate, I kind of feel like um, some redefining has gone on. I don't think I was redefining myself, I think others unknowingly kind of did that for me. Although, in those times, they may have simply just been kind of playing with me and being funny. But I'll try to point out some of this as we walk through this sermon. And I'm going to start by sharing a bit of my story with you. Um, some of you know some of these facts because I preached on the topic of grief back in January. But I'm going to go through it relatively quickly to help you to see what, kind of what, what I'm thinking. Um, prior to August 17th, 2013, life was pretty normal for me. I felt like I was kind of in a groove. I felt like our family was in a groove. Uh, I felt like things were just pretty normal. I felt defined, if you will. If you'd asked me what defined me back um, prior to um, August seventeenth, two 2013, I think I could have answered that question pretty easily. Um, Things were normal, you know, I mean, uh, I would get up each morning to do my devotions, get ready for work if it was a work day. Margie and I were extremely settled and happy. Most nights we had dinner together. Uh, At least once a week we would go out on a date together, which I strongly encourage for you as married people. Um, There were children and grandchildren and all the events that come with that. We tried to attend as many of those as possible, even the 16-hour dance recitals. (laughs) They felt like 16 hours. They were actually only four. Four hours. Um, But we did those things. We had events. We had vacations. We had church on Sundays, small group on Monday. you know, through the week I'd be at the office to study, do administrative things and counseling and a variety of things like that. Friday was typically a a day that I would spend with a friend of mine. and We'd do service projects together and encourage one another. Um, Saturday was typically a day of rest and relaxation to try to get ready for Sunday. Most nights we would end the day with a kiss and good night. Life was predictable, normal, good. Didn't have a lot of drama in our life. On August 17th of 2013 though, everything changed <clears throat> and I began to have to recalculate. I got out of the groove and I, I, in fact, I'll tell you, I'm not even sure I can see the groove anymore. Um, our predictable, normal, good life without drama became very unpredictable. Oh, it was slow at first, very slow at first. I remember August 17th because that was our 40th anniversary. We were at the coast, as many of you know, um, and we were out to dinner and Margie went to the, to the bathroom after dinner to drive back to um, where we were staying that evening and she noticed something and we had to begin to recalculate. That got her to the doctor and in early September um, of that same year, she was diagnosed with cancer, recalculating. When you hear that word, you immediately start recalculating. And as many of you know, in the couple of years to, to, to come, there were medications, there were doctor visits, more than I can recount or recall. Two years of chemo treatments, there was a blood clot in the neck, in Margie's neck, a pathological break in her hip. We got used to walkers, wheelchairs, toilet extensions and shower seats. We had oxygen 24-7 that had to be cared for. Her driver's license was taken away, so the ability for her to transport herself was gone. Recalculating, uh, we experienced an emergency trip to the hospital and had two separate stays in the hospital. There were doctor bills, insurance, phone calls, waiting through automated systems, and two years and two months after that anniversary dinner, As many of you know, on October 25th, 2015, Margie was with the Lord. I I just got to say that's the most unique two years I had ever experienced in my life. And I had to begin to recalculate. But after Margie died, um, it didn't stop. Life continued to kind of be different. On October 26th of 2015, the day after she died, everything was different. Uh, I had to recalculate. I went to my R-group for the first time that evening as a single man. I had lived with Margie for 42 years. It was a very new feeling. I went home after that group that evening and walked in for the very first time to an empty home. My girls had spent the first night with me you know we spent the night together the day her mother their mother died and and um they offered to stay with me nights after that but i said no you have family you need to get home to your family i need to walk through that door at some point might as well be this evening but i was i was struck when i got home cuz you know um Margie would go to the groups with me from time to time, but she became more and more confined to the house. And, and I would ask her, is it okay, you, you okay with me going to the group? And she would always want me to go to group. But when I would come home, I would walk through the door and she would be right there to say, sit down, how'd the group go? What did you pray about? What did you do? To, you know, and, she, and we would, I would live the group with her. Um, and, and at this point, there was no one to ask how the group went, it was very strange. There was no one to say, I love you and good night anymore. There was silence, and the silence was deafening. And I had to recalculate. And I now had to live, I had to begin to learn what it was like to live life as a single man, a single father, a single grandfather, a single pastor, and a single friend. You know, I'd been married to Margie. We got married on, on August 17th of 1973, and we were at the ripe old age of 19. I had moved straight from my parents' home to our home as a married couple. I had never, ever lived alone. That was very different. I remember one evening, a couple in our church were bringing a meal over to me, and they said, would you mind if we had dinner with you? And when they asked a question, I was like, in my head, I was like, I I don't know. Who do I check with? (laughs) I had never made decisions in my my entire life. I'd never made decisions without the input of someone else. So I had to recalculate. I said, yeah. (laughs) And then... I felt vulnerable in a way that I had never, ever experienced before. Did you know that when you're a married man and you make a comment about, you know, a lady liking her outfit or you think she looks attractive in that outfit, nobody thinks anything. But then, as a single man, you make a comment about a lady that she's attractive or you like the outfit or whatever, and and everything's different. It's like, oh, are you interested? No, I'm not interested. She just just looks nice. It's just so different. And this is where I began to almost feel like I was being redefined. And in my head I thought, I'm still the same Tim. Nothing's changed. But it but it when you're recalculating it, it does people begin to think differently. And so I began to struggle with that. Where do you sit in church? You know, when you're used to coming in and sitting with your... We'd sit right there. My children are there and my niece right now. But we'd sit right there with... I'd sit right there with Margie. Well, Margie wasn't around anymore. Where do I sit now? I mean, I can sit with my children and I do. But early on, I was like, where do I sit? And if I sit with somebody, will they feel sorry for me? Because I don't have anybody to sit with me anymore? That's the kind of stuff you go through. Where do you sit at a church party or dinner or some kind of group gathering? When you're single, I never knew this. When you're I didn't mind having I didn't mind being in a in a setting where they were where everybody was married, that didn't bother me a bit. But where do you sit? Because you begin to look around. You, you begin to count who's here, how many couples are here, and how many chairs are and where can you sit where you won't mess up, you know, where you won't separate them. You begin to think about those things. Who do you ask if you're dressed appropriately? I admit, I put on three pairs of pants this morning, three different shirts. If I don't look good, don't tell me right now because I'm having an insecure moment. But, you know, when you're, I was used to having somebody go, mm, you're going to wear that? Uh, you think those socks match? Uh, should I wear something else? Uh, yeah. Um, Does this match? No. Tim, that's black, that's blue. You know, I mean, you you go through all that stuff. Now, it's like you look in the mirror. The only person you have to tell you if you look good is you. (laughs) Uh, I had to get used to an invitation to a wedding that was, to me, plus one. Well, who's the plus one going to be? And do I even need a plus one? I mean, it's weird. You've got to recalculate. You've got to think different in your head. And then I had all kinds of things that I was dealing with in the newness of all of this. I caught myself trying to be a dad to my children and to keep their mother's traditions alive. It was very difficult. I've, I've almost found out that I can't do that. I caught myself struggling with language I was no longer an us. I was now a me. Uh, Margie was dead but she's still alive. These things go on in your head. I didn't, I've never really felt lonely but I'm very aware of the fact that I'm alone. I know that sounds different but, but I mean almost like an oxymoron but it's just, it's weird. I never realized how much I talk to myself. People say, people, people say, oh, you talk to yourself, people talk to themselves all the time. They do, but when you're alone, it's a whole lot louder. About seven months after Margie died, I was introduced to someone, went out on a few dates with this gal, recalculate. It was so strange, weird, awkward, and kind of nice to have somebody just to have dinner with and talk to. And that didn't work out. That didn't work out. I mean, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't, didn't work out. And So I recalculated and thought in my head, well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to be single. And I'm just going to live my life for the Lord in my singleness. <laughs> I figured it all out. Then about two months ago, I was introduced to a woman by a friend of a friend. She lives four hours away, so I started trying to find out if this, if this, if the Lord was in the middle of this. And so I, I, we went out on a few dates together and talked on the phone. And honestly, I, I tried to talk myself out of it. And I kept feeling the Lord kind of prompting me a little bit, and. I even think I was almost kind of trying to sabotage it. I don't know if anybody else knows what that's like, but it was like, nah, th- this, I, th- this isn't right. And so I, I tried to talk myself out of it. And then, but every time I would come up with a reason why we shouldn't be dating, um, I'd get an answer <laughs> that said, keep trying, or keep, keep, keep dating. And then about three weeks ago, it's a story that I don't want to tell here this morning, but about three weeks ago, Everything changed and I fell in love. Now wrap your head around that. I cannot wrap my head around it. I really can't. I don't know how you can love someone for 42 years and then out of the blue, fall in love with somebody else. It's just strange, wonderful, weird, and we're talking marriage, and what do you do with that? I worry about my, what's that going to do to my family? What's it going to do to my church family? What are people going to think? You know, you just go on and on and on. Recalculate. She was here at church last week while I was preaching to meet family and friends, and I was just a mess internally. Well, when life happens, you have to recalculate. And I've learned a few things that I want to share with you, just three things that that I have learned as I've gone through all of this and more. The first one is this. Circumstance change, circumstances change, but the Lord doesn't. Never forget that. Matthew 6.33, I know you're all familiar with it, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Uh, I'm sure many of you have memorized that passage and I'm sure you that have memorized it and maybe, maybe you that don't, I think you all agree that this is the best way to live our lives. Uh, I'm a fan of Scripture memory. I, I think it's a discipline that every um, believer ought to nurture in their lives. But I've come to see a, a danger in just picking out a passage and just memorizing because it's easy to forget the context that that passage is within and it's it's sometimes easy to miss what it's really saying the context of Matthew 6:33 is Matthew 6:24 to 34 or 25 to 34 and here's what it says therefore i tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do whatever the circumstances which I'm inserting, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. This passage is talking about, when we're talking about seeking first God and His kingdom, this passage is talking about those things that we worry about that give us comfort. We aren't to worry about our comfort or care, but to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. He'll care for all those other things. And what I had to learn is although my circumstances had changed, the Lord Lord doesn't change, and He is still working in the midst of the circumstances, and I had to learn that. The second thing I'd share with you is circumstances change, but the Lord's church doesn't. Circumstances change, but the Lord's church doesn't. Matthew 16, 13 to 19, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and He asked His disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this will not be revealed this was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven, and I tell you the truth that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the reason I bring up that circumstances change, but the the Lord's church doesn't, is because when... Struggles come into our life, we have a tendency to think about ourselves. What we forget is we are a part of something much greater than ourselves. We are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. You know, when when Margie died that morning, I remember it vividly. I can see it in my head. Um, The funeral home came and Ultimately, they, they took her out. And as, as they were wheeling her body away, I felt like the love of my life was being taken away. And I saw a car go by on the street, and the person in that car was smiling as if they didn't even know anything was happening. And I thought, the love of my life has died, and life just continues. They ought to stop for a moment and know that we're hurting. And then it hit me. No. No life needs to go on because death does not end life. And I had to remember that. And it is true that God's church, he created it to take his kingdom to the world. But what we must never forget and what I had to learn is that we are a part of something greater. And although the kingdom, the church was created to take the kingdom to the world, the church was also created to care for all of us, to care for one another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And I will confess to you, before life happened, generally speaking, I was independent and secure in myself. I forgot or I didn't realize that I needed people as much as I thought they needed me. I had forgotten that we are a part of something greater than ourselves. The body is a unit, First Corinthians twelve twelve says. Though it is made up of one part, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. And I had to learn, I had to, learn to allow people to care for me. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And the command there is we, we need to carry one another's burdens, but we also need to let people carry our burdens too. It's kind of a two-way street. The third thing that I learned is that circumstances change, but we cannot allow our circumstances to change us. My circumstances had changed, and certainly I needed to change some things but my circumstances didn't change who I was in Christ and circumstances do not change who you are in Christ I you we no matter the circumstances still belong to God I you we still need to live our lives for him I you we When circumstances change, we will have to recalculate, but we cannot redefine who we are because 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12, which I recited to you last week, is still true even though circumstances change. We, I, you, me, we are still chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God no matter the circumstances. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy no matter the circumstances. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, no matter the circumstances, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. No matter the circumstances, we are to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. When Margie was diagnosed and died, ultimately, people told me to take all the time I needed. They said Margie is more, imp- and by the way, these these were—I don't even remember who told me this. I just remember hearing it, and I and I and I want you to know that it there was, there were they were just trying to be nice, but I had people say, "Listen, Margie is more important than the church." I just got to tell you that's not true. That is not true. They were being sweet and kind. Margie and I talked about this. When cancer came into our life, we made a conscious, we had a happy life, a great life. We, we had no regrets. There wasn't anything that we hadn't done that we didn't want to do, at least at that stage of our life. We talked about, although cancer comes into our life, we did not want that to define us. We wanted to still live our lives for Jesus Christ. And we had to learn that, and I had to learn that. And so those are three things that that I learned. And out of that, I'd like to take a moment just to share with you four kind of practical things to help you to know what to do when life happens. The first one is this. Think about what you have rather than what you don't have. Think about what you have rather than what has been taken away from you. Philippians 4, 4 to 9 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, no matter the circumstances, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Whatever you have learned or received from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Circumstances may change, but our attitudes about life and the Lord and all those things need to stay the same. 1 Thessalonians 5:16 and 17, no matter the circumstances, we must be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I want to tell you, make no mistake, you are what you think. The mind is where it happens. Matthew six nineteen to 21 says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart, which is a reference to who you are, your mind, there, where your treasure is, that's where your mind will be, if I was to paraphrase that. I had a lot of people say things to me after... Margie died and in an effort to help. And the most common thing that I heard, which, again, nice people, they're trying to help. You know, we feel uncomfortable when someone's hurting. We want to try to help in any way possible. Um, and they would say, Tim, if you need to talk, I'm here. Or they might say something like this. You know, so-and-so went through that, went through exactly what you went through. And nobody goes through exactly what someone else goes through, just for the record. Everything's a little bit different. But so-and-so went through it. If you want to talk, then um, they'd be happy to talk with you. Now, maybe I'm different than other people, but I just found that so odd. Because I thought to myself, what do I want to talk about? Margie died. She's with the Lord. She had cancer. I mean, I don't even know how to talk through that. And maybe I'm missing something but I, I was I was just ready to move on. And sometimes we spend so much time in the past thinking about what we've gone through, we wallow in it. And that's what I didn't want to have happen. Romans 12.3 says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgments in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The reason I didn't want to talk about it, because I didn't, I didn't want to I didn't want to just focus on me. I wanted to move on and think about the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes people just get too caught up in their circumstances and it can control them and define them. And I think we have to, we have to be, try to move on from that. Oh, it's okay to grieve, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But there comes a point that we need to move on. I, I, was, I thought this week about King David. And you know the story. He, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he had a... Uh, they had a child. Um, he committed murder to try to cu- cover that up. And ultimately, that child was born and had, you know, some kind of sickness or something. God, they, You know, it was like God was going to punish them. And David, you know, was concerned for that child. He was fasting. He was praying. Even his, even his uh, the servants that were around him, they didn't know how to handle him. And then after the child died, something very interesting happened. And I think we sometimes miss it. Uh, it's in 2 Samuel Uh, 12, 21 to 23. It says, his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? This is after the child died. Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but now the child is dead. You get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is gone, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will return to me. My point is he got up and moved on. So when life happens, think about what you have rather than what you don't have. The second thing I would share with you, do not allow yourself to get isolated. That is so dangerous. It's really easy to not let people into your struggle, at least for me. It's real easy not to let people into your struggle because you don't want to appear weak or needy. And I want you to know that Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. And when a person thinks that way, it's just pride is what it is. Do you know, by the way, why we are referred to as sheep in the Bible? If you think it's because we're dumb, you would be wrong, because God does not see us as dumb animals. I think it's because we have a tendency as people to go astray. And to get isolated. Matthew 18, 12 to 14 says, what do you think if a man owes a hundred, owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth. He is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now we have a tendency to focus on the one. Like like God cares about just the one. Does that mean he doesn't care about the 99? No, of course he loves the 99 too, but they're safe. So he's not worried about them, he's worried about the one that's got isolated and is is, um, at risk to predators. When life happens and you go through struggles, the worst thing that can happen is to get yourself isolated because we need need people. The devil wants to get you isolated. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you watch how lions hunt, they try to get an animal away from the herd so that they can kill them and eat them. That's what the devil does. Do not allow yourself to get isolated. We all need people. The third thing I would tell you is don't wait for others to serve you. Give them the opportunity. Now hear that. Don't wait for others to serve you. Give them the opportunity. I am coming about this kind of from a different direction. Galatians 5.13 says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. So clearly, we, when we read something like that, we focus in on the fact that we need to serve. But implied in that is that there is someone who's going to allow you to serve them. We've got to allow one another, we've got to allow others to serve us and to care for us when we are in need. I, you know, I had some questions that, that initially kind of bothered me, but then I, I, I began to understand that I was looking at it really wrong. Some people would say, how can I help you? I, I, I didn't even know what I needed. I really didn't. And so I would say, I don't need anything. Just pray for me. Sometimes people would say, if there's anything I can do, please call. I said, okay, but I probably won't. You know Why? Because I'm a prideful, self-sufficient man who's too afraid to ask for help. But then people would offer, and I would turn them down. I would say, no, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. That's all wrong, by the way. I had to learn that people wanted to help, and I began to understand they're just trying to help. Let them help. It's good for them, and it's good for you. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are dis- my disciples if you love one another. And again, we are to love, but we, people can't love if we don't allow them to love us too. There's got to be a, a, somebody that allows somebody else to love. I don't know if you know what passive aggressive behavior is. There's a lot of different definitions of it. I'll just give you a very, a very quick definition. It's basically, you got in your mind something you want to have happen, but you're passive. You don't tell people what it is. But you then harbor anger when they don't do what you think they, what, what you think they should do, even though you won't tell them what you want them to do. And so, so often we say, oh, no, I don't need anything, but we really want them to help us. And then we harbor some, some bitterness about, against them. That's passive-aggressive behavior. We need to get over that, folks. We need to tell people what we need. And if we don't know what we need, then work through it with them. We need one another. It, recently we had a family that... that Went through a tragedy. We didn't know they were going through the tragedy. New to our church. And they called and asked if we could help them with meals. And we said, yeah, that was great. They showed us how we could serve them. And then when all was said and done, of course, some of you took meals to those folks. And then after it was over, they were like, wow, this is the most giving, caring church we've ever been around. Well, they told us they needed help. Out of, you, you, you catching what? But we got to help. We got to help one another to help one another. If you need help, but you're not going to ask for it, don't get mad when it doesn't come. And then here's the last piece of advice I would give you. Get ready. It's really good. Make your bed. I remembered a movie. I still don't know which movie it was. Somebody said it was Sleepless in Seattle after the first service. I thought it was after that. I kind of think it was a... Tom Hanks movie but it was about a guy I don't even remember the story I just remember what he was told you know that basically he needed to make his bed you know he he was he was lost and he needed to move on and he needed to make his bed well in an effort to find the movie I put into the search engine make your bed and little did I know that there was actually a uh, commencement speech that was made uh, at the University of Texas, and it was made by the commander of the forces that organized the raid to kill Osama bin Laden, and he delivered some key advice to, on, on success. He says, if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. I thought, <laughs> amazing, the internet. Uh, U.S. Navy Admiral William H. McRaven told the graduates of his alma mater, um, on May 16th, McCraven, the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command, relayed several lessons he has learned in the 36 years as a Navy SEAL, and one of them was make your bed. Listen to what he said. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day, he said. It will give you some sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And here's the key. And a, maid, and a maid bed gives you encouragement that the tomorrow will be better. Please stand. There is no way to go through life in a world that is infected by sin. There's no way to go through life without life happening. In premarital counseling, I always tell couples, we are talking about marriage within a sterile environment right here and it all seems to work just right but after you get married and life happens it becomes real and life will happen for you some will be good some might not be so good but never forget who you are in Christ never forget that Jesus is, I mean that the lord is still working and never forget that we serve him and that death does not conquer us no circumstances should change who we are and what we are to do Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this wonderful day that you have given us to enjoy. Forgive us, Lord, if we get so caught up in our circumstances that we neglect all the good things you've given us on this day. Help us, Lord, to see those good things. Help us to love one another. Help us to take your kingdom to the world. Help us to stand against the evil one. And help us to share Your kingdom with a world that is in so need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, folks.